Okay, Paul writes, hear the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and trembling and singleness of heart. As you obey Christ, not with a slavery performed merely for looks to please people, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the soul. Render service with enthusiasm as for the Lord and not for humans, knowing what, whatever good we do, and we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are enslaved or are free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening to them, for you know that both of you have the same Lord in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Now, I hope you begin to see what I'm talking about here that we have to do some work of transposition. Otherwise, we could just be like, all right, well, that has nothing to do with us as it talks about slaves and masters. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But we want to take the order that Paul provides for us. So first, it says, children, obey your parents. Now, the children that are likely in view here are still receiving instructions in the home. They've not married yet. Likely, they're somewhere between early elementary school to their early 20s. And so Paul says, he addresses them as moral agents. And there's a beautiful thing going on here. Paul is addressing them as a part of the family of God in the context of the church. You know, much like we have our children come and join us in the midst of worship, we want to constantly convey to them that they are not secondary members of our community, that they are not the, the people that we tolerate until they go off to their children's classrooms. No, they are a foundational and fundamental part of our life together. And we want to honor that in so many ways. And Paul is doing that here very subtly. He says, children, obey your parents. Now, as I talked about last week, with the instructions that were given to wives on submitting to their husbands, the word given to wives in Ephesians chapter 5 is not obey. It is submit. And we talked about some of the ramifications of that. If you missed that, you can catch that teaching on our podcast, Spotify, Apple music, whatever they call it now. But the word given to children here is to obey. Now, we have some caveats that we have to apply to this. Because anytime obedience is called for, it is assumed that that obedience still falls within the umbrella and the framework of somebody leading one rightly and, and trying to form one in the image and the call of God. And so, you see this in Acts, Acts chapter 5. They tell John and Peter to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they say, hey, whatever's right for you, that's fine. But we cannot follow this directive. For we must obey God rather than obeying people. And for many of us, even for kids, like this kind of principle applies. That there is an assumption here that those parents are raising them in such a way that it would honor God. Now, Paul goes on and he says, honor your father and your mother. Jesus, his life gives us the paradigm and the example for obeying God while still honoring our father and our mother. If you recall in the Gospels, there's a point where Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, want to see him. And they come to the house where Jesus is teaching, and some of the people from outside come in and they say, Jesus, 
your mother and your brothers are here and they want to see you. And Jesus is in the midst of ministry. He's in the midst of doing the very thing that God has called him to do. In John's gospel, he'll say, I don't do anything that, that is not the will of my father. And so Jesus is doing his father's will. And he looks around the room and he says, here are my father, my mother, my sisters, and my brothers. He subverts the cultural norms in that society. You see, first century, especially Jewish culture, was a highly integrated family network. This was not the kind of thing that you would say because one of the Ten Commandments that Paul references here is honor your father and your mother. But Jesus is showing us that it's still possible to honor our father and our mother without submitting and obeying to everything that they say because Jesus has a mandate on his life, a call from God. He has to obey God rather than obeying human authorities. Jesus, during the last moments of his life, will show us the depths of this honoring of his father and his mother. As he looks at his mother, his earthly mother, Mary, and he entrusts her to the care of the beloved disciple. And he says, woman, here is your son. Now you have to understand, for Mary, especially in the context of John's gospel, it's quite likely that following Jesus has cost her the rest of her family at this point of her life. Is it, and you can see how this would happen. Just imagine if you had a brother who was telling everybody he was God. If he was like at every level in, incurring friction with the local authorities and it was because that he was claiming some sort of status of divinity or specialness and you're like, I know where you come from. I've seen your butt wiped. I've seen you with a runny nose. You are not God. And you can imagine as Mary keeps following her son and submitting to this teaching that he is, is imparting. And the other brothers are like, Mom, you've lost it too. What is going on? And in this culture, again, as we talked about last week, deeply patriarchal culture, a, a woman was to be cared for in her old age by her sons. It was part of their mandate. And so it's very likely that as Jesus is dying on the cross, the last son who is somewhat loyal to Mary as giving his life for the sake of the world, that Mary in that moment is, is, is sort of, it's dawning on her that she will be alone. And Jesus, honoring his father and his mother, entrusts Mary to John, or the beloved disciples, care. The Roman cultural expectation, especially as we talk about in Ephesians, was certainly that children would obey their parents. But Paul does this very subtle thing. He's, he provides the motivation. He's saying, here's why. And so the work of transposition, as we kind of put the cultural capo on, some of us in here today are from cultures where honoring and obeying your parents are one and the same thing. You do what they tell you to do you may need to do some work of differentiation, of vocational discernment. Now, that, that's, that's honestly usually a different culture than the culture that is predominant in the American context. Many of us are from the American frame, which is a much more highly individualistic culture. For us, we may need to do some work of confession, of repentance, and reorienting towards what it means to honor our parents. Paul interestingly, does not apply caveats concerning whether parents deserve honor or obedience. Paul's promise that they should dwell long in the land is not an infallible promise. It's not some kind of prosperity gospel, like if you do this, this will happen to you. It's more of like a proverb, saying this tends to be the way things go. 
Paul's call to honor parents is trying to shift our lens to a lens of gratitude. Grateful to our parents for the gift of life, for the care and nurturing they provided. And one really tangible way to honor your parents, if, if this is still a possibility for you, if they're still alive, is to sit down and take an accounting of all that they have given you and simply write it in a letter and send it to them. What an amazing thing to go back through the moments of your life and just say, thank you. Thank you for this. I didn't know what this meant in the time that it happened to me, but I have a different perspective now. This kind of blessing transforms people. And it will have an effect both on you and on your parents. Paul is trying to shift our frame to a frame of gratitude. But perhaps you're here and you're saying, well, my parents were absent. Or I never knew my mother or my father. And I just say, I'm so sorry for the pain of that. And I've also seen in my own life with friends that that didn't have a father or mother growing up, how God has become father and mother to them, truly. Not just in a, like, and how they have seen God transform that pain into something beautiful. And for all of us, no matter if you had the best family in the world, you had the idyllic childhood, you went on all kinds of road trips, you did all the stuff. Or if you had, a, like, honestly, a pretty broken childhood, and you look back on that with a lot of anguish and pain, for all of us, no matter where we're coming from, honoring our parents, our father and our mother, involves forgiveness, Right? Like, it's such a sobering and painful thing for for me to realize that for our kids, for Courtney and I, we want to give them the best life. We want to show them what it means to follow Jesus. We want to show them that can be done with joy and with abundance. We want to show them all these things, but to know that at some level we will be a part of their wounding. To know that despite our best of intentions, that they will be hurt by their life with us. And that we will have to entrust ourselves to the grace of God and say, God, we we did our best. And for many of you, the work of honoring your parents is, is simply a matter of allowing God's grace as patiently and as carefully and as slowly. And I always want to make this point. Sometimes forgiveness comes slow and it has to be returned to often. You know, I think we have this, this kind of stereotypical image of forgiveness as if it's this one-time release from everything. That's not how we experience it, is it? Oftentimes when we've been deeply hurt, we have to come back to that forgiveness, to that grace over and over again. For many of us, we have heavy wounds that we carry from our parents. And friends, honoring them does not mean calling abuse or absence is actually something good. It simply is a call to allow the grace of Jesus working in our lives to transform our pain so that we don't transmit it through the hard work of forgiveness. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 4, he says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul puts his attention specifically towards fathers here in this place. Now, in this Ephesus context, the the context of where this letter is addressed, fathers, from a cultural perspective, could kind of do what they wanted. They were the rulers of the household. And Paul is giving them specific instructions for not just what they are to do to fulfill their role, but the way that they are to fulfill it. And he says, fathers, you have a significant mandate from God to raise children, to know the scriptures, to know and honor the Lord, and to serve his kingdom. 
Now, I would say overwhelmingly, like I, I actually can't think of an exception. Every dad I know is committed to having a great relationship with their kids. This has not always been the case, right? Some of you were raised uh, by parents that were from an era where there was a different expectation of fathers, right? Now, some of you were raised in an era where the expectation was that the father would provide discipline. And so it was like, wait till your dad gets home, that kind of mentality. But the people I know, the people that I'm alongside that are fathers right now, we want our kids to be our friends, And so there is, in many ways, been a societal shift of what it means to be a dad in America. And this, I think, is a great thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. But one thing I think we, as a society, hearing this from kind of a different social location, have to hear in Paul's instructions is the level of intentionality on the part of dads that is required to raise children, as Paul says, in the Lord. My friend John Tyson has written specifically about this for fathers raising sons, and he's working on something for fathers raising daughters. And look what he writes of the intentional father. He says, the intentional father is deeply invested in discovering who his children are and how he can help them reach their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children that God has given him and wants to form them into the person who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting as central to his call before God and does it with all of his might. This kind of father leaves multi-generational blessing in the lives of his children. And friends, one of the beautiful things is that John has written a whole book about not just the vision for this, but how to begin to step into it in a way that, I love what he says at the beginning, he says, discovers who your child is. Not just applies a program, like this is a way to sort of raise you in the Lord, but is first and foremost committed to discovering who has God wired this person to be. And then taking the sort of raw material and saying, Lord, I want to commit my life as a father to raising this young person in light of who they are and of who you are. And so Paul puts a specific and a very weighty mandate on the role of fathers in this church. Now, I want to say too, this does not downplay in any way the importance of mothers or somehow suggest that single mothers are less adequate to this task. Again, Jesus' life is so important here. If you read the Gospels, you can discern very plainly the influence of Mary and her faith upon the life of Jesus. The first thing that Mary does upon hearing that she has been called to be the bearer of the Son of God is she constructs this poem talking about the the mighty being thwarted from their thrones. It's really beautiful. You can tell that Mary is a deeply, deeply thoughtful theologian. You just think of all the time that Mary spent with Jesus. And surely Jesus had his own life with God, but how much of that just comes from the, the, the beautiful life that Mary had with God? And so to you mothers, if you're single here today and you're trying to raise children, this is not saying that you are somehow unable to accomplish what is being asked of you here, but it also is a call to our church. You know, the psalm says that he sets the orphan in families. Our call is to be a people. And for for those of us men in here today to take on the, uh, the challenge and the, the blessing that is available to us in not just considering the kids that are ours, are specifically ours, to be raised. This is a call for us to be a family, 
to step in where there may be gaps. And what a beautiful vision that is. So Paul writes, fathers, raise your children in the Lord. And again, for all of us who have been at this for any amount of time, we know that is a lot heavier task than we ever would have thought. He then goes on. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not with a slavery performed for looks to please people, but slaves of Christ. Render service with enthusiasm as for the Lord and not for humans, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are enslaved or free. Now, it's important to step aside for a brief moment for kind of a, a, a little detour. Uh, the main thrust of this text is talking about these different roles in the family in this first century early church. And we have to ask ourselves the question because we have to kind of attune to the way we hear this passage. Why, if slavery is so obviously wrong, does Paul not just come out and say it? Right? If you think about the history of interpretation of this passage, how this passage has been used to justify the most abhorrent of evils, why does Paul not just come out and say, slave, slave masters, free all your slaves? Why doesn't Paul call for societal revolution from Christians to end this institution of slavery? Well, in short, and I'm going to illustrate this in just a moment, I think he does. But he doesn't do that in the overt ways that we often would expect or would want. First, there's a very important and often overlooked short little book that's further back in the New Testament called Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon, whom from this, uh, who is the owner of the slave Onesimus. And Onesimus has escaped from Philemon, and he's found Paul. And upon his escape, Onesimus finds Paul, and he becomes a partner with Paul in sharing the gospel. And Paul eventually sends Onesimus back to Philemon carrying a letter. This letter has some really genius and subtle qualities that I want to get into real quickly. First, as we see in Philemon, the beginning of Philemon, the letter to him, it's not just a letter that's a personal correspondence, not just intended for Philemon to read. But it's a letter that's addressed to the whole church that meets with Philemon. Now, how many of you, if you had this super sensitive financial matter, and somebody was sending you a letter as to how to handle it, you would want that read in front of everybody here today? And especially if that was going to require some very hard decisions on your part, some very countercultural decisions, you would probably want to be able to take in that information in private and then be able to, okay, I'll move from there. But Paul addresses this letter to the whole church and says, hey, take this letter and have it read in front of the whole congregation. So he writes in the beginning of Philemon, he says, to our beloved co-worker Philemon, to our sister Afia, and he's doing this thing too, he's ingratiating himself, to our beloved co-worker Philemon, you have no idea what I'm about to ask you, but it's going to be awesome. To our fellow soldier Archippus and to the church in your house, Paul writes to Philemon, beginning in verse 8, and you'll see those on the screen. He says, for this reason... Though I am more than bold enough, this is Paul talking in Christ, to command you to do the right thing, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this, notice again, ingratiating himself, even letting Philemon know how pitiful and poor Paul is. I write this to you as an old man, and now as a prisoner of Christ. He says, not only am I old, 
but I'm also in jail for Jesus. So again, tell me how hard your life is and tell me how hard it's going to be when you lose your house servant. I'm appealing to you, Paul writes, for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might minister to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. And you have to understand, first century imprisonment did not have any structural things in place to provide for food or any of a prisoner's needs. A prisoner was completely dependent upon those outside of the prison to provide for their needs. And so Paul is basically saying, you should be taking care of me, Philemon, and your church. However, Onesimus has been. And so he just keeps putting his weight upon the scales. He's like, yeah, sure, you can decide to keep him, but I'm going to really make sure you understand how deeply this is hurting me. He says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back for the long term, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. See what he did there? He says, oh, there was a cultural status inequality here, but I am just ever so subtly yet geniusly leveling that status. He's no longer your slave, he's your brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. He basically says, listen, I'm Paul. If you've read the New Testament, if you're familiar with it, I wrote it. And if you've read that, you understand I have no problem being bold, no problem telling people what I think they should do with their misplaced interpretations. And I'd rather do this with the carrot, not the stick but he applies all the societal pressure he can muster. And he says, Welcome Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as a brother. And it's fascinating, especially in our conflicted cultural moment, especially when it comes to politics, that when Paul in the New Testament comes up against the overwhelming current of cultural and political forces, he doesn't call for outright revolution. He follows the example of the risen Jesus. We talk about this a lot, but think about how Jesus declared to his disciples that he was alive again from the grave. Think about what Jesus didn't do. He didn't go to the centers of power. He didn't go to the Roman palace and say, "Uh, Caesar, one of your underlings killed me, and yet here I am. He did none of that. He went and he sat down to a meal with his friends. Because Jesus knew that the way towards societal revolution, the way towards ending these inequalities was not by outright overthrow, but was by creating a people committed to doing his will in the world. Paul's working theory of change, of discipleship, is is not some idealized political platform or program. And we need to hear this. It's the mess of the Spirit of God dwelling in the local church. Friends, we are a sign to the world that there is another way from left or from right. There is another way from sort of declaring that those people are the evil people. And if we can only be done with them, then we can have all of the justice and goodness of a society that we all long for. We are a sign to the world. But as Ephesians has shown us, this sign is not easy 
to live inside of. It is messy. It requires that we bear with one another. But this is Paul and Jesus' vision for transformation of what it means to live as the new creation, people of God, that we would be in relationship and life together. Esau Macaulay, a New Testament professor, theologian, I actually put a bunch of his books on the table. We're going to start just a bit of a new practice here. Uh, When I have some books I'm fascinated by, there'll be an opportunity. You can grab one on the table. I just asked, there'll be a QR code that we put up later that'll be on the screen as we kind of dismiss the service. You can just come and scan that code. If you can donate like $10, $15 to the book, do it. If you can't and you're like, I really want to read this book. I just don't have the money to spare. Just take it. It's okay. Okay? But this is such an important book and actually is such a beautiful example of this work of transposition that I'm talking about. Of, of reading these texts in line with their cultural origins, in line with what the authors were really saying, but then saying, this is how we can apply it to our life today. And so that book is called Reading While Black. It's on the table. But he says this of slavery in the New Testament, in light of these passages that we're reading. He says, the story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. Nonetheless, The Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. Esau Macaulay writes a weekly column in the New York Times, too, of you. I'm I'm a big fan. He quotes from the 19th century pastor and abolitionist James W.C. Pennington, who also says, My sentence is that slavery is condemned by the general tenor and scope of the New Testament. Its doctrines, its precepts, and all its warnings against the system. I am not bound to show that the New Testament authorizes me in such a chapter and verse to reject a slaveholder. It is sufficient for me to show what is acknowledged by my opponents, that it is murdering the poor, corrupting society, alienating the brethren, and sowing the seed of discord in the bosom of the whole church. Let us always bear in mind what slavery is and what the gospel is. And so friends, I... Again, we have to do the work of transposition. Because if we just read these things on their face, it's like, oh, God's cool with slavery. No, he isn't. And the seeds of the absolute destruction of slavery are sown right here in Ephesians. They're sown in Philemon. They're sown by the very life of Jesus. Who The first word that he says in Luke chapter 4, or the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. I've come to declare freedom to the prisoner. This is our call and our mandate. This is who God is. And so it's important, even though that's not the whole thrust of Ephesians, we kind of have to go because that's how we hear it, right? We're like, wait a second, what did he say? Now I want to get back to what I think is kind of in line with what's going on here in the text. Now he says of slaves, and we don't really have a category for that. We know like for, for us, as we're standing here right now, there are somewhat 27 million people that are still enslaved in the world. And many of the products we buy, we have to be aware of where they come from for that reason. But for us, how do we, how do we read this? How do we understand this? And for some of us, it will understandably feel quite strange to equate the concept of first century slavery with our own experience of work. Again, this is where the work of transposition is so important. There are principles that remain, but sometimes the expression changes slightly. Now, for others of you, your job may feel like you're completely stuck, that you are toiling and tired, and there's no end in sight. And wherever we find ourselves, the call from Ephesians is the same. 
working as if you are working for God himself. Cultivating an attitude of diligence and joy and honesty. And again, I, I know that this can be such a tense discussion because for some of us, if you ask us what do we do, we light up because we get to share like our life's passion. We get to do that for a living because of the society that we live in has really reached a, sort, a point of privilege that allows us to do things that, that maybe we wouldn't do otherwise if we were just having to survive. But for others of you, you know what that work of survival looks like. You know what that toil looks like. And again, Paul's not making any distinction between the kinds of work. For most of the people that he was writing to, they would have been agrarian peasants. They would have been people whose life was, well, their whole life was carving out subsistence. And Paul says, work with all diligence and joy and honesty. Again, I think we can look to Jesus here. Jesus was born in a time where trades were not chosen, but rather they were inherited. What did Jesus' earthly father do as a trade? You guys all know, Sunday school. Jesus was a, his, Joseph was a, a carpenter, right? And so Jesus from all we can infer, likely spent the better part of his teenage years and his 20s as a carpenter. And if you indulge me for just a moment, I don't, Paul says this in Corinthians, he says, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. I can't prove this to you a chapter and verse. It's just something I've intuited. But if you read the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, you see that Jesus is always walking by the water, by the sea. Who were the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him? They were fishermen. Where did Jesus spend much of his time teaching and traveling? In boats. I have this sneaky suspicion that Jesus did not want to be a carpenter. That Jesus himself preferred fishing. And you know what? Jesus submitted to the life that was for him. And in obedience to his father, surrounded himself with a bunch of people that he kind of wanted to hang out with and be like. And friends, I don't know why you work the job that you work. I don't know how much it equates to first century slavery. Again, the work of transposition is so important here. But what is important here is the principle that's being applied, the intervals that God is calling us to play through. Diligence and honesty, integrity and joy. This is, these are the kinds of workers that we are called to be. Paul writes in verse 9, he says, the masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same Lord in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Paul's subtle work of leveling status as all are one and equal in the family of God continues as he addresses masters. And again, we have to do this work of transposition. He tells the masters, he says in quote, do the same, in effect saying that all the instructions that were given to the slaves are now applied to the masters. Paul's subtle, masterful, just gently leveling the scales. For us, we again take, undertake the work of transposition. For many of you, you are team leads in your company. You are business owners. You are the boss. And really the question that Ephesians 6 is asking us is what kind of culture are you creating? Is it a culture of anxiety driven by fear? Do you, you allow yourself to vent and freak out on your employees when things are going badly because that's the only thing that works? Dallas Willard says that to be an apprentice of Jesus is to spend enough time in proximity to Jesus that we do the things that he would do within the setting of our very lives. 
what would it look like to, to accomplish the very real goals that you have as a business or as a, a company in the Jesus way? Remember, Jesus lived his life full of integrity, accountability. He was clear in his expectations. Jesus was a great leader. And I think sometimes there's this feeling that following Jesus as a person in the marketplace means lowered expectations. It's not what it means, right? But it was the way, and it's always with Jesus, it's always the way that he accomplishes his goals. Because Jesus knows that there is an absolute harmony between the end that we are trying to achieve and the way that we achieve it. Those two things can never be distinguished from each other. Jesus never accomplishes goals through compulsion or throwing his weight around. And I think that is a compelling vision for us who are charged with leading others in so many capacities. And so kind of a mixtape, a mismatch and transposition that we have to undertake as people hearing these words in our time and place. But one thing I think as we kind of wrap up today, as we talk through this text in Ephesians 6, talking about parenting and work, these can be two of the areas where regret, that feeling of what happened, begins to take root so strongly. And so today, I'm going to invite the band to come forward as we move to the table. I simply want to point us to the grace of Jesus that is available to us right now for restoration, for redemption, to lift us from the awful weight of shame that we often carry around, and to carve a new path ahead. Jesus gave his life on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to defeat the curses that stood against us. And so just from the vantage point of, of parents and children, for many of us today, as, as children, we all have parents, we all have to figure out what it means to honor them. And wherever you find yourself on that spectrum between like, I need to allow God's complete and total forgiveness for the toxicity and the abusive environment that I was raised in, to, to somehow take root in my life, if that's where you're coming from today, that is available. If you're just saying, I need to be grateful. I've been so just self-centered to my parents. And I, 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 I maybe have taken more stock of what's wrong than what's good. And they did their best with what they have. And I think that's the general line that we see through most parents is that they did their best. And they've given you something. They've imparted something, a blessing. And just accounting for that and saying, thank you. can be such a powerful, world-changing thing. And for those of you who are parents in here today, maybe just that call to fathers to be more intentional. And, and I want to say for, for those of you who are alongside me in this journey of, of raising children as a father, it's a call for us to know Jesus deeply first and foremost. To impart an intimacy with Jesus that, that God would get a hold of their hearts. That is what we have to offer them. And so maybe today you just need to say, yeah, I've been, I've been in my kid's life. I'm, very, I'm showing up, but you need to say, okay, I need to allow something of my life with God to be transferred to them. Maybe today you, you are a, like a product of a divorce and you are not able to be around your kids all the time. There's grace for that. There's a way that God can work within the confines of our lives. And then it, as it comes to work, I just want to say, God is just calling us with all diligence and joy to be people of integrity. 
doesn't mean that everything is always okay. It doesn't mean that your, your job is not menial or it's not soul crushing. But you can control allowing God to come into the confines of your daily moments and just say, God, I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't want to be here, but I'm here to serve you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if there's nothing else that I see other than that, then I have to keep that before me today. I think God does so much with that kind of heart. If you're familiar with Brother Lawrence, he was a cook in a monastery. He was regarded as somebody who was like such a second-rate citizen. But he had a life with God. A life with God that he recorded. It's a life of God that we still read, still reflect on today because it was so powerful within the confines of this menial existence, cooking food, but being alive to God. There is a grace available, whether you're dragging regret, whether you're feeling like you need a new start, there is a grace available today. It starts at a table. As we come to this table, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit. I can't name everything you might be facing or dealing with or have experienced, but that God would meet you and that I can proclaim that faithfully, that because Jesus and his gospel are true and present here today, that the King of kings and Lord of lords is here today the one who gave his life to redeem us from the curse, still changes and renews us. And on the night Jesus was broken, he gave his life and he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the as often as you eat, as often as you drink, you declare that there is a new way. I'm going to invite our communion service to come up, and while they do, I just want to pray over you.